uh, all the words that make them cringe a little bit, especially the staff kids whose parents have been up here. So luckily, I don't have any kids of my own to torture this morning with the words that I say from the front. So the youth maybe will breathe a little bit more of a sigh of relief until they learn that the topic we're speaking on is homosexuality, which makes everyone cringe a little bit when that's the topic. Um, because it is a, a topic filled with uh, emotional and spiritual baggage because of the way it's been treated this morning. So hopefully uh, I will be able to uh, speak on it with God's grace uh, and um, some softness around that. And in preparation for this morning, I listened to a podcast, a Jen Hatmaker's podcast, and she had a guest on there, uh, a woman named Sarah Cunningham. And Sarah and her family attended a church in Oklahoma for over 20 years. They were well involved. Their kids grew up through their youth program there. She was quite involved with the church. She had a group of women which she had invested relationships in and, and grew in deep relationship with. And then she tells her story uh, in the podcast, and she coins, uh, gives a little phrase to summarize her story as their journey from the church to the pride parade without uh, losing their faith. And it all happened when her youngest son, Parker, when he turned 20 years, 21 years old, came out as gay and introduced them to his boyfriend. And it was a revelation that shook her world. And she turned to those whom she loved and trusted the most, those women in her church with whom she had built a relationship with over the last 20 years. And when she came to them for support and help, uh, she describes the response as this. It was devastating to hear the when you hear the words, love the sinner, hate the sin, and that Parker had been turned over to a depraved mind. They just didn't know what to do with us. They didn't know how to minister to us. Sarah is still plugged into a church, a, a different one than the one she was in before, and she's joined uh, an organization uh, called Free Mom Hugs. And what they do is they travel across the country to different pride parades with a banner and a pin that says Free Mom Hugs and, and offers uh, just a symbol of unconditional love to those marching the pride parade, many of whom who have been, uh, once they came out, have been kicked out of their communities, ostracized, uh, even kicked out of their own families. And to come there and see a mother who's giving them a free mom hug uh, begins a healing process for her, or for them. And she says that uh, every son needs his mother. And so she goes around to offer these hugs, but her story isn't a common one. Many people in the LGBTQ community uh, don't have such a story. When they come out, they get uh, disowned by their families, they get kicked out of their churches, they face all this oppression and persecution. Uh, stats say that those in the LGBT community are four to seven times more likely to commit suicide and uh, in Canada, 64% of students who identify in this community say they feel unsafe at their schools. And regardless of where you stand on the issue, those stats point to something that is broken and wrong in the way this community has been treated. And so this morning, I hope that 
as a church, we can look at our convictions and how those convictions ought to uh, influence our actions. So before we dig into this topic, we need to come to a little bit of a common understanding of the terminology. Uh, to be able to have a conversation about this topic, you need to know some of the words and some of the definitions that are used by that community and able to uh, engage in helpful conversation with them. So we're going to start with LGBTQ, which is the common acronym for the uh, community. And uh, sometimes you'll see a plus at the end of the um, acronym. That's because the term had actually, the acronym had actually expanded to LGBTQ2QQIAA. And actually, it could even further expand to LGBTQ2QQIAAPAGBGP. And so they just, they've put a plus in now. Sometimes it's LGBTQA plus, uh, and the plus is just to signify all those other terms that can be in there uh, and that continue to expand as well. So we're just going to stick with LGBTQ in our definition. Uh, and really, this topic touches mostly on the LGB and Q, not so much the T part, but we'll go through all of them here. So the L uh, is, stands for lesbian, which is one that we may be uh, commonly aware of. It's a female who expresses sexual attraction uh, for another female. The G stands for gay, which is the other one that we may be familiar with. Uh, typically refers to a male who expresses sexual attraction for another male, but uh, can be also used as a general term. So females can choose to uh, identify as gay uh, rather than lesbian or as both. The B stands for bisexual, so it's someone who is sexually attracted to both genders, male and female. Then we get to the T, which is transgender, so someone who identifies as the opposite gender than their birth gender. So if they're born as male, they identify as female. If they are born as female, they identify as male. And the last one, Q, stands for queer or questioning. Uh, queer is a general term, uh, kind of the umbrella term for someone who's same-sex attracted or as, uh, identifies as a different gender than the one that they were born as. And um, the word queer was originally a derogatory term used in the 1980s for the community that the community actually has claimed back as their own. Uh, it's actually kind of similar to our theological um, history as Anabaptists. When the Anabaptists for came out, first came out in the 16th century, Anabaptists, rebaptizers, was actually a derogatory term used towards them that we reclaim as our own today. Uh, some even believe that the term Christian uh, they were first called Christians in Antioch, which meant little, little Christs. And they believe that that might have been actually a derogatory term for uh, the people who followed Jesus uh, that they eventually just claimed as their own as they started separating a little bit more from Judaism. So that's similar with um, queer there. So that's some of the different um, people who are in that category. And the plus shows that there's lots of other identifications and orientations that come with uh, in this community. So it's a vast and diverse community. The other distinction that we need to make before we really enter into this topic is uh, the difference between same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior. So same-sex attraction, uh, which is used in most of those uh, terms there, sexual attraction, is someone who is oriented towards uh, being attracted to the same gender. It's an orientation thing. It's kind of like that 
this is going to be a terrible metaphor, but it's the best that I could come up with. The, they, uh, a male would see another male and get that little heart flutter that many of you who are heterosexual, when you see your significant other, 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 you get that little heart flutter as well. It's the same thing. It's that orientation. Uh, so homosexuality, heterosexuality, the orientation is what uh, same-sex attraction or an opposite sex attraction would be. Same-sex behavior is uh, the uh, engaging in the sexual activity with someone of the same gender. And the importance of that distinction is most people who are standing in the non-affirming camp that view homosexuality as a sin, the important distinction is they would say that same-sex behavior is sin, not same-sex attraction. So just because you have that attraction, uh, especially with research that shows that same-sex attraction orientation comes uh, both from nature and nurture, um, not a choice, that they would say, okay, same-sex attraction isn't what's inherently sinful, it's actually the behavior is. So that's an important distinction to talk about. So when we're talking this morning about homosexuality, we're talking about same-sex behavior. All right. And I want to recognize that there is great sensitivity around the issue. Like I said at the beginning, there's lots of emotional and spiritual baggage. So much so that when we say something that someone disagrees with, we raise up our walls and get all defensive. We start drawing the line and digging our feet in the sand. And this reaction isn't helpful for conversation. It turns the conversation from uh, a healthy dialogue into us versus them and is quite divisive. There are denominations, uh, Christian denominations, who are splitting because they're taking uh, sides in this issue and digging their feet and raising their walls. And I want us to recognize that that is our typical reaction when someone says something that we disagree with. So uh, we need to keep that in our mind. Whatever side of this issue you find yourself on, uh, I want you to listen and have an openness. We prayed for softness this morning. And so I pray that we would have softness as we talk about this issue and an openness, that we would listen to one another. And so the Sunday morning format is very much me speaking at you, so it's not as much of a conversation. But if this is something that you would like to have a conversation with, I got permission from Brad that you can have a conversation with him. I'm willing to have a conversation with you. And I'm going to throw Wally in there. I didn't get permission from Wally, but he gives me the thumbs up now. We'd be willing to have a conversation with you. And we would, uh, I hope that we would approach it with that same softness and openness to listening to you as I hope that you have for me this morning. So with that being said, I'm going to start with a little bit of a thesis statement off the bat. Sometimes in our sermons, we like to like do a little exegesis and then surprise practical application thrown in there. I'm just going to lay it out, kind of the argument at the beginning here for you. Um, whatever belief you hold in this topic is likely built upon some other foundational theological belief. Your belief about scripture's inspiration is going to affect how you uh, approach this topic or your theology around what God's character is is going to uh, shape your outcome on this topic. And so this morning what I'm going to talk about is uh, this issue from the perspective of being created in the image of God. All right? So this is the thesis, the theological uh, implication. Come on. All right, the theological implication is this. Humanity being created in the image of God means that God has the authority 
over what our purpose and function in life is. And it also means that since humans are created in the image of God, they have inherent worth, value, and dignity. And then so the practical outworking of this theology on this issue is that God originally created human sexuality to be practiced within a covenant relationship between a man and a woman and calls the church to love all people, treating them with value, worth, and dignity. So there's the thesis statement, and now let's get into it a little bit. We're going to start with our first theological point, that being created in the image of God means that God has authority and has created us with purpose and function. And so the creation of human beings starts in Genesis 1, 24 to 28. Then God said, let the earth produce... Oh, that's not right. Is that right? Sorry, it's 26, not 24. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So the function that God created human beings with is in order to fulfill his purpose is to be, oh, no, sorry, I'm skipping ahead. The creation of humankind is accompanied with a purpose. We've got to start with a purpose first, and that is to govern and subdue the earth. God says he's creating humans to be like him. And classifies that by saying they are to reign over creation. God reigns over creation and he chooses to do so through human activity. Through the actions of those who've been created in his image. And he re-emphasizes this point because he says it twice. Uh, They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, livestock, all the wild animals on the earth. And then after he creates them, he blesses them and tells them to reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. This is what their purpose is. And so the outworking of that commission, the outworking of that purpose that's been giving them is also in verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. It is the continuation of God's work. God is a creator, and so he creates human beings in his image to be creators of life, just as he was. Back at the beginning of the chapter, it says the earth was formless and empty, and darkness hovered over the waters. And so there's a problem with the earth before God gets to work. It has no form. It is empty and it's dark. And so God goes about through the seven days solving those problems. He makes light to get rid of the darkness. He makes land and sea to give the earth form. And then he fills the earth, solving the emptiness by putting animals and birds and fish on his creation. And then he... And then he tells his people created in his image to be fruitful and multiply. And so the purpose is to fill the earth and govern it. And he starts narrowing it into how that function looks in Genesis 2, 21 to 25. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib 
and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The function that God created humans with in order to fulfill the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying is human sexuality within the context of a man and a woman becoming one flesh in that covenant relationship of marriage. And this shows that God created sex and sexuality as good because it has a purpose and he created it and it's good within the proper context. This is the sexuality that the Song of Songs is celebrating. Sean McDowell and John Stone Street in their book uh, called Same-Sex Marriage describes three essential characteristics of marriage. The first is uh, two humans becoming one in every way possible. The second is oriented towards procreation. And the third, that it comes with an expectancy of permanence. So that first one, two humans becoming one in every way possible, is what Wally talked about in his um, message on marriage, the impossible mathematical uh, equation of one plus one equals one. Somehow two persons in marriage mysteriously become one. Two distinct persons becoming one. It actually sounds kind of similar to one of our other major theological convictions. Because we're created in God's image, we are reflective of God who is Trinity. Adam Barr and Ron Sitlow in their book say it this way, as stated in the Athanasian Creed, not one person of the Trinity is less or more God than the other. Three persons are joined in a union that can only be described as oneness, yet distinguished in a way that must be categorized as three. In an amazing, creaturely way, the husband-wife, one-flesh union reflects the light of God's eternal community, the Trinity. So the Trinity is one plus one plus one equals one, just as uh, the way God designed marriage is one plus one equals one. And the importance is that they're three distinct persons. There's diversity and yet unity in the, mess- in the message. So if there was a Holy Spirit, a Holy Spirit, and a Holy Spirit, then that actually equals three. There's a son, a son, a son, that actually equals three. But because there's that diversity, there's a father, there's a son, there's a Holy Spirit, somehow mysteriously that equals one. And because we're created in God's image, it's a similar idea with same-sex marriage. One man, one woman combined to become one flesh. But one man, one man equals two. And one woman plus one woman equals two. The same gender lack the diversity necessary to create this mysterious oneness. The second point in their essential characteristics of marriage has a very important word in it, and that's oriented towards procreation. Because the fact of the matter is there's obviously some male-female relationships that are unable to um, create babies. And so the important word is this, is oriented towards. Again, McDowell and Stone Street 
classify this uh, when they say, even if pregnancy is never achieved, their union is achieved when biological function is performed. It is the coordination towards a single end that makes the union. Achieving the end would deepen the union, but is not necessary for it. The action, uh, uh, the sexual activity within a marriage of a man and a woman is still oriented towards procreation. Even if that couple wasn't, if that couple wasn't barren, that same activity could still create children. And so it's oriented towards childbirth. However, same-sex behavior, whether the couple is barren or not, can never create a child. And so it isn't oriented towards procreation. And so it misses that second essential part of marriage. The third part is that it comes with an expectancy of permanence. So a child born and raised within this unit, the marriage doesn't just create a couple, but it creates a family. And so there's an expectation of permanence and relationship. That's what covenant was always. It was a permanent agreement. And it permanently, uh, it, when it functions properly, is supposed to permanently orient them towards that children, that child that's raised in there. I'm not going to touch on that much uh, to this morning because I don't have that kind of time, which is a lot of this topic. There's just not enough time to cover it all. But I would refer you to uh, John McDowell and Eric Stone Street, or John Stone Street's book. It's called Same-Sex Marriage. It will, we're creating a reading list that will be in the info sheet next week. Uh, and you can find it in there. And to they discuss about uh, same-sex marriage from both uh, a biblical argument and a secular argument, and it's a really good resource. If you want to borrow it, I have it, so you can borrow it from me as well. So we've been talking from an Old Testament perspective so far, looking at creation. Um, when it comes to the New Testament, those who affirm same-sex behavior, one of the arguments that they use is that Jesus didn't say anything specific on homosexuality, so he must have thought that it wasn't a very important topic, which is true. He didn't say anything specific about it, but it's a rather weak assumption to think that it wasn't important because by that same logic, Jesus didn't say anything specific about slavery, and so it must not have been important. It just doesn't work like that. The safer assumption is that Jesus is a first century Jewish man, and he likely didn't say anything on the topic because he agreed with the typical perspective of first century Judaism. Bard Sitlau say it like this, because Jesus, like the entire Jewish community of his day, looked to the moral code of the Old Testament, and because we know, theologically speaking, that Jesus inspired his authorship, we can be sure that Jesus would not endorse homosexuality. This can be backed up by the fact that whenever Jesus is asked a question about marriage, particularly when the Pharisees come and ask him about divorce, they're thinking he's going to go to Moses' code, which tells them, you can divorce someone on this basis, on this basis, on this basis. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't go to Moses. He goes way back to creation and refers to the creation story. Jesus places both the law and its instructions on marriage within the larger context of what God intended in creation. And then again, Adam Barr and Ron Sitlow, the book that I'm quoting them from is called Compassion Without Compromise. And uh, they give us a helpful observation about the community, uh, the biblical community. And he says, they say, for the biblical authors, questions of sexual, sexual ethics were not framed in terms 
of does this behavior cross an arbitrary line? The real question was, does this behavior honor the creator's plan for human sexuality? If the answer was no, then the behavior was censored precisely because it would lead people out of the garden of God's blessing and into the desert. The biblical authors had a different frame of reference. At least Jesus did. The Pharisees were using actually our kind of frame of reference that we like to use. And it goes, well, Moses said this. You could do it for this and this and this. There's lines that they're drawing. And as long as you don't cross these lines, then you're good. But Jesus goes back to creation and says, no, let's look at how we're created in the image of God and how we're supposed to function within that. And from there, we determine what needs to be censored and what isn't. What was God's original intention? It seems clear that the Bible understands proper sexuality as being confined to a marriage covenant between a man and a woman. That is how sexuality is expressed to the adherence of the image of God. The second implication of being created in the image of God is that humans have inherent worth, value, and dignity because they're created in that image. It is on this basis that Christians are called to treat each other with that, according to that value they have, the worth that the person has, and the dignity that person has. They're called to love and respect because people are created in the image of our creator. Paul says this. This is one of my favorite um, passages of the Bible, especially from Paul. It's in Romans 8, 38 to 39. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves people because they're created in his image. And he calls us to love people because they're created in his image. And that includes not only those who are same-sex attracted, but those who are engaged in same-sex behavior. The church has a bad habit of escalating sins to the unforgivable status. We do this quite frequently and throughout church history. In our Anabaptist history, they first did this with nonviolence and, and peace. You had to sign off that you agreed with nonviolence or else you weren't allowed to be part of the church. If you decided to serve in the military or to serve in the police force, then you were kicked out of the church. They had elevated that to the unforgivable status. And then later they moved that on to divorce. If you had anything to do with divorce, you weren't allowed to be part of the church. You were kicked out. Now for many churches, same-sex behavior has become the unforgivable sin. But the truth is that we all have sins that we struggle with. Some of them sins are of a sexual nature. Some of them are different. Pride, greed, lust, we all have something that we're struggling with. And yet, we tend to view ourselves as sinners, but that's not how the Bible views us. Repeatedly, Paul and the other biblical writers, when they're referring to the church, don't call them sinners, they call them saints. Even though they struggle with their sins, you're constantly called saints because you've been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. 
And because we're called saints doesn't mean that we stop trying to stop being sinful, that we don't try and fight against that sinfulness. But it does mean that we're forgiven. It means that we are all welcome to the table in fellowship with God and with his church. Jesus' arguments with the Pharisees surrounded a difference of belief. The Pharisees believed that in order to be holy, you need to start with the outside and then it would work its way in. You separated yourself from all unclean activity and all people who practiced unclean things. And when you separated yourself enough, then you would be holy. But Jesus said this wasn't true. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said you're focused on the outside, so your outside's looking pretty good, but inside you're full of death and corpses and dead bodies. And Jesus says, no, you got to start with the inside. you got to start with your heart, with yourself first, and then that moves outside. But you got to start with the inside. Amen. Jesus says, you need to take the log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of the neighbor's eye. It starts inside and works its way out. And then Paul goes to apply this principle that I'm going to call the Jesus principle of starting within and working the way out. And he applies that to the church. McDowell and Stone Street say it this way. Change comes on the inside before the outside. Paul, in his book of 1 Corinthians, was writing to a church located in a city known for debauchery. Yet he tells them that they must first confront the grievous sexual sin that is taking place in the church. Redirecting their attention, he asked rhetorically, for what have I, do with ju- what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those inside the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. That comes from 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13. See, the church has spent far too long focusing on the outside rather than on the inside. A study done by David Kinnaman, uh, I can't remember what year, but in his book, Unchristian, he, uh, they surveyed a bunch of young adults. And the number one uh, opinion that young adults had of the church, 91 or 93, 91 or 93% of them said, the first thing that comes to mind is anti-homosexual. For so long, the image that people have had of Christians are the people who stand on the street corners with signs that say God hates fags and says that they're going to hell. Rather than reflecting the image of God who loves the persecuted and the oppressed, many Christians have jumped in and oppressed and persecuted. And this sadly still continues Many people in in Langley in our city today have been raising their voices against the SOGI uh, curriculum, uh, same-sex orientation and gender identity curriculum that's being introduced in schools. Um, Brad chatted with the Minister of Education, and we were able to meet, he mentioned this last week, meet with um, the lady, I can't remember what her official title is, but who's uh, putting this curriculum to schools. She's in charge of safety. And... Uh, This isn't to brag what we did, but it kind of points to what the church has done. And um, Brad asked the Minister of Education and asked this lady if any churches had come to talk with them. And and they both said no. No one's tried to have a conversation. They've just raised their voices against it. And so we asked what was the intention behind putting in this curriculum. And the intention is trying to solve that statistic that 64% of LGBTQ students feel unsafe in their schools. It's 
Intention is for anti-bullying and anti-harm towards these kids who are in this community that's often oppressed and persecuted. And those sounds like things that the church would be standing up for. Sure, there's some things in the curriculum that we don't agree with, but the church is, has always, not always, the church recently has been known for what it's against rather than what it's for. And we missed a huge opportunity in standing alongside people who are being oppressed and persecuted and showing them the unconditional love of God. Instead, we've jumped in to persecute. Sarah Cunningham and her son saw the church as not a good place to have this conversation, which is incredibly sad. The church should be a safe place to have these conversations. The commission to love people because they're in the image of God involves standing up for those who are oppressed and persecuted, regardless of whether they agree with us or not. Loving people who are in the image of God means making sure all students feel safe at school, whether we agree with their lifestyle or not. The Jesus principle says that we need to start with ourselves, and the starting point is repentance. Whenever Christians fail to live up to what we know to be true, we are called to repent. And whenever appropriate, acknowledge our wrongdoing to those we have offended, even if they are on the other side of an issue. We need to repent of ways that we have not shown love to those who are hurting and struggling with sin. We need to repent of holding particular sins as unforgivable. Both because we haven't treated those people as if they're in the image of God, and we also haven't treated God very well, saying, God, you can't forgive that. Limiting God's grace. The proper response to someone coming into the church who is same-sex attracted is to welcome them and treat them the same as any other person who comes into our church because we all come in with some sort of sin that we struggle with, and yet we're called saints. The book, Compassion Without Compromise, is a powerful book for one of the reasons of that being is one of the authors, Ron Sitlow, is actually a a man who struggles with same-sex attraction. And his ministry is filled with walking along others who are same-sex attracted. And he says we can do good and be in relationship with our gay and lesbian friends because they are the bearers of the image of God. So in a real sense, we are not doing good to them, but to the God we dearly desire to honor. Our Our good is not acceptable of unbiblical lifestyles, but the honoring of God's image in individuals. So the one thing about loving someone like God loves someone is there involves a process of transformation. God loves us enough to not let us stay the same, and he loves others not to let them stay the same. There's a transformation. And the important thing for us to realize when we're loving someone is that we're not the people who bring about the transformation. We bring people to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit brings transformation, just as the Holy Spirit has transformed us. And I'm going to use the Bradism. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that that transformation means that God's going to free them from their same-sex attraction, from their orientation. Because for many, that doesn't happen. He might, but for many, many, it doesn't happen. 
Just as we may be greedy and prideful, God doesn't necessarily free us from greed and pride. Instead, he calls us to discipleship. As Ron Sitlau puts it, it is hard to walk with the reality of the same-sex struggle. But that is exactly the point. Each person who seeks to follow Jesus, if they actually try to do it, will find it quite hard. The demands of the gospel are harsh. Anyone who would follow him must die to self. That is to their self-desire, their self-will. So the notion that the gospel doesn't work for those who struggle with same-sex desire is simply not true. He uses discipleship language. Dying to self, to self-desire, to our own will, and replacing that with God's desire and God's will. That is the work of discipleship that we all find ourselves in. And this is where I think Jen Hatmaker's podcast falls short. She had uh, recently come out as affirming of same-sex behavior, and she got treated very badly by many churches, which is an issue in itself. But throughout the podcast, she makes the assumption that you cannot be welcoming if you're not affirming. But by that logic, it means we'd also have to affirm greed, pride, lust, and stealing in order to to welcome those who are full of pride, who are full of greed, who are full of lust, and who steal. But we don't affirm those things. And yet, the people who struggle with those things are still welcome. That's not how Jesus operated. Jesus welcomed sinners. He ate with tax collectors who were greedy. He ate with prostitutes who were engaged in sexual activity outside of marriage. But he also called them out of their sin. Discipleship is an act of love, of bringing someone to the Holy Spirit for transformation. Love is welcoming the sinner just as God welcomed us when we were sinners. And love is calling that sinner to place Jesus at the center of their life just as Jesus has called us to place him at the center of our life. And so the response this morning is to follow the Jesus principle, to start with the inside, to start with ourselves. Those who engage in same-sex behavior do something that we all do. They place something in the center of their identity other than Jesus. And Jesus belongs at the center. And from the center, Jesus influence every other, influences every other point of our identity. He influences our sexuality. He influences our self-worth. He influences um, our family life. Every piece of our identity, when Jesus is at the center, is influenced by Jesus. But those who practice same-sex behavior, who find their main identity in one of those LGBTQ um, titles, place their sexuality at the center of identity and let that influence everything else, the place where Jesus is supposed to be. And it's not just those who are same-sex attracted or who uh, practice homosexuality that do that. Heterosexuals do that all the time. It's a big thing in our culture. Our culture places sexuality now in the middle of our identity the place there Jesus is supposed to be. And so it's something that we all need to repent of. So the worship band is going to come up and lead us in a response. And this is a time for us to reflect inwards and to repent. It's a time for us to consider what we have placed in the center of identity instead of Jesus. Maybe it's family, maybe it's work, maybe it's greed, pride. Maybe it's our sexuality. Or maybe there's something that's just fighting with Jesus over that spot.
and we need to come and repent. Perhaps we need to repent some of our actions. Perhaps we've not loved someone who's in the image of God the way that we should have. This can be a time of repentance. So let us spend some time in worship and prayer, asking God to continue to transform us, asking God to continue to show us that those around us have inherent value, dignity, and worth because they're created in the image of God, and letting it show us that we have inherent value, dignity, and worth because we're made in the image of God.